Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are once again coming to you from our separate domiciles. So the uh, You know how the this, this plague thing is on all over the place, and so we're trying to do the safe thing, the, the sane thing, and, and do this from two separate areas. So again, you're going to notice a little difference in audio quality, but we figure this is better than trying to do the show from a hospital bed, which is going to be far less effective. We're in the dump bunkers. His is a little nicer than mine. Yeah, I got the warshed. If you guys have been on the Instagram or the Facebook recently, you would have seen the pictures that I posted a couple weeks ago about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm really enjoying it out here. I've got an air conditioner. I've got a heater. So I can just basically, uh, I can just be out here. It's pretty sweet. So we're coming to you today to talk to you about one of the last chapters that we're going to be doing with the Frederick the Great book, uh, which is going to be The Importance of Where. But before we do that, I still have not received my lightsabers, but I'm living vicariously through my buddy Thumbs, who's got some interesting stories to tell about his. Yeah, uh, on that note real quick, uh, I've heard other people say they're having similar issues with Ultra Sabers. I think they're just doing really weirdly well right now. Well, they're doing really weirdly well, and then there's supply issues with their electronics at the moment, because you know how global supply has been disrupted, so it's just, they're they're doing well, they have a high volume of sales, and then they, 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 they're having issues getting their parts, and so it's a, a kind of a perfect storm for the consumer. No, no fault of Ultra Sabers, but uh, I'm glad you have yours. Yeah, uh, and with those ones, I went uh, camping for my birthday a couple weeks back, and my wife and I brought ours, because why would we not bring lightsabers into the middle of the woods? It's a great idea. I love it. And uh, we gave each other a couple of whacks. Uh, learned a couple of things. One, they sting. Well, they're not padded. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we say medium combat. Yeah, we mean yeah. light touch, because yeah. ow. <laughs> um... And my wife is a wonderful woman, but when she swings to hit something, she swings to hit it. Uh, and we both had bruises the next day. Well, for those of uh, those of our listeners who don't know your wife, uh, she comes from, from Rivoli County. So in Missoula, uh, in, in Montana, you got these two counties right next to each other, Missoula County, Rivoli County. Uh, Missoula County is where all the hippies and the hipsters and the uh, long-haired uh, folks like myself like to hang out. And then you go into Rivoli County and you've got some good... Uh, traditional, like, ranching-type Montanans. And so uh, Cece comes from Rivoli County. Yeah, it's so much more rural. So she she grew up on a, in a very rural area doing very, very rural work. I mean, she's got all sorts of critters there on the, on the farm out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, once I move out there, we're going to have to figure out something to erase the sounds of the peacocks in the background. <laughs> ah! I was on a video chat with uh, some Gelf, and I didn't realize how used to the peacocks I'd gotten mm -hmm. until they started making the rah, rah noise every time a peacock did. Yeah, and we'd yeah, be yeah. talking, and I wouldn't notice, and suddenly everyone would be going rah, rah, and I'd be like, "What the hell is going on?" Um, <laughs> but to the lightsaber's point, you know, the thing we were actually talking about. Sure. Only light touch. If you hit too hard with them, they will shut off. And I think it's them being like, hey, no. Quite a... Stop that. <laughs> and it wasn't so much against each other, but when we would swing the lightsabers and hit the other lightsaber and just crack, crack. Uh, also, super cool thing is how bright they are. 
Like I knew, you know, they glow, whatever. And it doesn't look that impressive during the day, but at night, it's just insane. We're in Montana, in the woods, on a cloudy night, an hour and a half out of town. Like, there is not much light pollution. There's not much light at all. We have no moon. We have no stars. Couldn't see a freaking thing. We're able to fight when the lightsabers were on. No problem whatsoever, just because they, like, they just gave, like, a five-foot, like, globe of light that you could stand in. Especially with two of them on at the same time, I imagine it was a really nice proliferation of uh, lumens. Oh, yeah. And we had, like, a purple one and a blue one, so the lights, like, diffused each other a little bit. No, it was great. It was so cool. I I foresee a whole new level of night fighting emerging at events. Oh, yeah, we're going to break these things on each other. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So yeah, I'm still I'm still waiting for mine. Again, we're we're uh, we're we're still promising you this video. It's it is coming. It is coming. We promise. But uh, we're like we're finally ready. We finally have all the gear. And then Montana's like, "Hey, why don't you not see each other for a while?" Thanks, circumstance. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I know this is the same way for everybody. We're sitting here whining about not getting to see one another when, you know, we still got our health. We've still got the ability to do this show. So, I mean, I'm thankful for what we got. I'm thankful we're still able to be here talking to you folks. And, uh, you know, the rest of it is, is, is extra. It's luxury. And we'll get to it when we get to it, when it's safe yeah. to do so. But, and so speaking of, of where we go from here, uh, not necessarily in terms of what we do after whatever is going on is going on, um, but uh, you may have noticed if you're a part of our Facebook uh, community that we have posted the meme, where do we go after Vegetius? Now remember that we are going to be doing Vegetius uh, immediately after Frederick the Great. Well, not immediately. We're going to be doing a, a little, uh, another a study of a, a realm and of a um, unit. And then we're going to be doing a study of the like the Jedi, the Jedi Handbook and the Sith Handbook and kind of looking at what, what little gems you can glean from those things. And then we're going to be moving into Vegetius. But after that, again, Thumbs is wanting to get these books ordered and kind of want to get, get a leg up. I ordered all of them because that's just who I am. I, I figured I'm going to read them anyways, so I might as well own them. I like to be about a book ahead so I have time to prep for it. Which makes sense. Which makes sense. There's a lot of, a lot of material here you got to get through. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to bring that up again. So if you go there on the Facebook page, you'll see four different books, uh, from four different authors in different kind of areas of the world, writing about different conflicts and, uh, well, I, yeah, yeah. And so uh, go on there and kind of choose the one you want. It's, it's going to be a little bit different. This, the, the book following Vegetius is going to be asymmetrical warfare, which is to say unconventional warfare, which is to say guerrilla insurgency type. Uh, warfare because again not everything that we encounter on the field or in on a in a game of 40k is going to be evenly matched sometimes we're going to have a smaller force uh, and need to know how to work with that effectively and so that's kind of what these this examination is going to be on the way we're voting on the facebook page is giving different reacts to it like the heart react the laugh react the sad react right um right. and facebook will tell me so and so reacted however to a post of yours, but it won't necessarily tell me what post it was. Right. So I keep being like, why are we making people sad on the art of war gaming? <laughs> yeah, no, that's just the reaction to the, to the, it's one of the options on there. So, and every time I like curious look, I've done this like 10 times now. Sure. Uh, but yeah, if you're on Facebook, uh, head on over to the Art of War Gaming and uh, give a vote. Um, we'd love to uh, have the involvement. It's one of the wonderful things about this show is is getting that that interaction with you guys. And also speaking of interactions, one of my favorite parts about this show is that it kind of functions a lot like the wider academic or scientific community. 
because we have so many listeners from so different, many different areas of the country and from the world, uh, we have a lot of different people who are able to to kind of be up on these things. Not everybody who listens to the show is a historian. Not everybody was a history teacher or studied history in school. Some some of you all just like listening to history. Some of you all just like talking about history. But I do have some people who listen to us who uh, who know what they're they're talking about. And for instance, earlier on, like you'll remember in the first couple episodes, there was a fella in Germany who was uh, chatting with me about some of the errors I was having and, and the way I was speaking. And and that's one of the things I actually love about this because I I don't want to put out false information. It sometimes happens in the course of uh, studying history for the majority of your life that facts start to get wobbly. You know, uh, sometimes oh, yeah. things start to blur together. If you haven't studied them more recently, you, you might assume you know something when really you've just kind of forgotten it or misremembered it. And so that happens to us occasionally too. You know, uh, who figure how, how that's uh, how, how does that happen? How does an amateur historian and, and an enthusiast? <laughs> occasionally get things wrong that doesn't make any sense <laughs> impossible the human impossible. mind is infallible malark so uh in regards to that again i very much like it when you guys write in and, and give constructive criticism saying hey you know i enjoyed the show but uh there was this one thing that you the a fact that you got wrong and we actually within the last couple of days had some folks write in now again this show is coming out two weeks after i've had these conversations so for you guys who wrote in it didn't take us two weeks to get around to talking about it it's just the way that we do our production schedule i mean we talked to them so hopefully they understood that that they weren't just like talking to the future right 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 so with the first one, um, back in uh, episode 26, we were talking about the concept of coup d'elle. And I am not a native speaker of French. I'm not going to pretend to be a native speaker of French. I'm, I, I barely consider it an additional language. I can read it pretty well. But when it comes to nuances and subtle context, I, I'm still not there. I, I'm still very much a kindergartner in terms of my, uh, my understanding of the language. And so when we were covering this concept of coup d'elle, I... I took the idea and I went way more specific with it than I needed to. Because when you look at the, and I'm, and I'm glad we have a French listener, actually, that we had a, a the, the fellow wrote in a couple of days ago and was like, hey, I was just listening to this show. You know, I am French and um, you, you kind of got this wrong. Let me explain the concept to you. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful for the international audience at this point because, you know, I, I don't it's have so the cool. uh, so experience. Cool. I don't have the expertise to be able to just kind of know these things. So thank you. But anyway, so Kudel when literally translated, means at a glance or with a stroke of the eye. And so if you've seen Avatar The Last Airbender, there's this, this scene when Sokka is being trained by the Swords Master. And the Swords Master turns him around, has him look at this absolutely gorgeous view, and then turns him back around real quick and says, now paint it. He added a rainbow. And he added a ra but the whole idea with this exercise was this at-a-glance idea. You need to be able to, at a glance, look at the field and know what needs to happen. Know, be able to see the details, be able to see what's going on and, and just have it, have it right there. And so we made it very specific and to be like, what to know what to do with your army. And this was kind of the way that Frederick using, was using it within his context. But like the, the real, the, the French concept of this is again, like at a glance, it's just being able to take in all the details that are relevant in just a moment. And so, like I said, I know that's a, a small deviation kind of from what we were saying, but it is enough of a correction that I wanted to make sure I got it out there so that anybody who's listening to us going, oh, that's exactly what that means. You know, um, we're not giving you It was not exactly what it means. Yeah. It's not exactly what it means. What I liked from hearing from this guy, and I don't remember his name. I'm sorry, guy. It's nice to hear from you. Uh, is he doesn't play, from what I could tell, 40K or Belagarth, but he did do, does do wargaming. 
and him talking about how well what we were saying transferred, which was really nice to hear because I have to admit, I was listening to this and being like, okay, I know two very specific games that this information will work for, but like, are we useful beyond that? And the answer is apparently yes, which is great to hear. I, yeah, I like it. I like the fact that we can serve utility uh, in other people's lives. That's the whole point of the uh, of the show is to be able to add some experience and add some uh, some some flavor, some some extra stuff to whatever war gaming you might do. So the next co- uh, correction I wanted to do is actually comes from my 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 father. And I, for one thing, I just think it's cool that my dad listens to the show. You know, and, and so like it, to have him writing me and say like, hey, by the way, I noticed that you got this wrong. For one thing, it's like, cool, he's listening to the show with enough detail to be able to correct me. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's just it's, it's one of those things like when you're when you're when your parents are into what you're into, it just feels good. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Um, and so the mistake that I had made is that there is a West Point, New York and a West Point, Virginia. And at some point in my head. As much as I like the Civil War and as much as I enjoy studying the Civil War, I got those two places confused. So the West Point Academy, the one that produces the military, uh, like soldiers for the U.S. Army. The one you were saying was on the southern side last time. Is actually in New York. Um, and what I was referring to, the, the institutions that were in my head, and for whatever reason I labeled them wrongly, were the Virginia Military Institute, or the Virginia Military Academy, and the Citadel in South, uh, in South Carolina. So those two organizations were kind of what I was thinking of when I, when I mentioned West Point. Obviously, I said the wrong thing. That's on me. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that, that uh, there's a lot of folks I know who come from that area of the world. <laughs> and I'm sure all of them are sitting there being like, nuh-uh. I actually have hey. a friend who even went to the West Point Academy. And she's probably sitting there being like, I wasn't in Virginia. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So I wanted to give just a little bit of uh, specificity on these two, on, the, on these institutions as well, to kind of make sure that I not only define them clearly in my mind, but in, in y'all's minds as well. West Point is one of the oldest military institutions in the country. It was established after a edict from uh, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, during the time of the Civil War, it produced 294 Union generals and 151 Confederate generals. And so when I had said before that, the, again, the majority of the people coming out of there were from the South, that was absolutely wrong. I, 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 I did not nail that one. So uh, that's, that's a bad malark. <laughs> tisk, tisk. Switching down to the Southern side, uh, the v- Virginia Military um, Institute uh, produced 15 officers that eventually became generals and um one that eventually became a union general i'm sorry i made another mistake i'm going to correct it before the next episode west point 294 union officers not generals and 151 confederate officers not generals okay the next one vmi 15 confederate office generals bless it (laughs) apparently i'm just gonna be getting this wrong i believe 15 confederate generals one Union general. And then the Citadel um, is another very storied institute, but it is famous within the, the context of the Civil War for its uh, some, some um, cadets from the Citadel were the first ones to start it. They, they started the Civil War. They fired on Fort Sumter. And so that was the action, as, as you know, that kind of kicked off the, the military aspect of the Civil War. And so that, that was the, kind of the, the... And then for most of it, I mean, the Citadel also was involved in a lot of... The, the Citadel cadets were directly involved in some of the actions. And at one, at one time or another, um, there were quite a few of these cadets serving in the Confederate 
uh, army because they just had a lack of officers. So they were like, hey, you guys are trained. Come on. <laughs> you know, Jackson, Jackson remarked at the beginning of one of the major battles, um, they will hear from the Institute today. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, he was, he was talking then about the Virginia Military Institute. But I just thought it was, I just wanted to make sure that we defined these, you know, defined them in our... Uh, the war was inevitable by the time Fort Sumter happened. Like, it was, it was going to happen, and that was just the one that lit the flame. But you have to wonder how mad their teacher was. Yeah. You guys... You did what? <laughs> <laughs> so, let me get this straight. I guess I guess I should praise you for proper artillery placement. So we're going to do a compliment sandwich here. Uh, I, I really liked your trajectories. You hit your target. Um, you started the war, but but you know you 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 had good uh, cannon uh, drill. So you know compliment mm -hmm. sandwich, compliment sandwich. Yeah, that's that's exactly how that went down. I'm sure. Just I'm sure. Uh, having been in the military, they're all about. They want to make you feel good. They want to make you feel oh, yeah. good about yourself. You know, they want you to be an individual. They want you to have plenty of rest time, plenty of downtime. I'm terrible at sarcasm, guys. I'm, I, I'm thumbs knows that I'm being sarcastic right now, but I don't know if you guys do. So we I, uh, we do. It's pretty obvious. I'm very uh, <laughs> on my side. It's not a correction, but it is something we had said we were going to tell you about, and then we forgot about because these episodes are like an hour and a half long, and by the end we forgot about the one sentence in the middle. We get tired, guys. Yeah, we had been wondering about the origin of the word bohemian, because we're talking about bohemia a lot. It comes up constantly in this book. But bohemian, we think of as kind of like 19th century hippie. Yeah, yeah. Like I, when I hear when I hear bohemian, I think about like Moulin Rouge, about like all the cool guys in, in Moulin Rouge. Yes, that's exactly what I think about. And the difference is, you know, versus bohemia, which is what is now the Czech Republic, which was a major military power and we're like how did one lead to the other uh and so i looked up bohemia like the origin of the term bohemia and bohemian uh bohemia itself actually is a term that's almost 2000 years old the there was a celtic tribe called like the bowie it's like b-o-i-i -I, translated into english mm -hmm. um and tacticus tac tacitus something like that tacitus uh, yeah. very tacitus thank you mentions bohemia or the bohemians like in 98 bc or something like that and it just became the term for the area but it was never commonly used in the area it's kind of like how we call uh germany germany but people in germany call it deutschland deutschland yeah they called it uh, i have no idea how to pronounce this one i'm sorry but it's basically it's it's similar to czech okay and until the 19th century it was, you know, Bohemian, and it slowly turned into the Czech Republic. And the term Bohemian as, like, the drink-too-much-wine sort of artist or originates from the French, who thought that the Romani originated from Bohemia, and so they were calling them Bohemian. So it was a term of, let's be honest, trying to be rude, probably, to the Romani. And and just you know completely showing their lack of geographical know-how because you know oh yeah Romania kind of <laughs> the Romani everyone thought they were from everywhere but anywhere where they actually had anything to do with yeah yeah I mean it was one of those blanket terms applied to a large a large like a larger subsect of people that actually identified with with like mm -hmm. the cultural idea 
much like Bohemian, like we said, it was an actual country, but again, like around the, the, the turn of the 19th century, it's a matter of like, okay, well, all these people are being called hippies, they're, or, or these like, like, these wandering wastrels or whatever, they're Bohemians, and it's like, well, you know, it's, or, 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 or in, to a lesser degree, people say it's all Greek to me, you know? Yeah. There's, there's one country in the world where you can't say that. I wonder what Greek people say. If we have any Greek listeners, please let me know, like, what's your equivalent of it's all Greek to me? Because obviously, y'all can't say that, because if you say that, it means you understand perfectly what <laughs> what's being said to you. <laughs> Which defeats the I purpose of that particular... Yeah, that's, that, that idiom kind of needs that, that uh, to function. But yeah, so yeah, we had mentioned that. Thank you, Thumbs, for, for looking that up. I know I had forgotten about that for a couple of weeks, so I appreciate your diligence there. And then I guess one more thing, to actually talk about a little bit of wargaming as well. Um, I've been playing Tropico. I don't know if you guys have played Tropico. Not since I was like 14. Um, this is the first I've heard of it, which is weird to me anybody who knows me should have been telling me about this game but nobody has told me about this game i had to find it on my own so i did and uh <laughs> it's fantastic you get to be a a dictator of a latin american like island nation and so think like batista or castro and um you got a bunch of competing factions that you have to manage while you're trying to build up your infrastructure and while you know sim city may not necessarily be considered a military game and this is kind of a a sim city type idea you're building up this this island civilization in order to maintain a military within this game you have to have a functioning infrastructure like if your economy is not there if you're not producing a, a good surplus to be able to uh, pay for your soldiers it doesn't do you much good to have them and so it like i what i really like about the game is it stresses the importance of everything happening out because the battle only accounts for like 5% of the war is battles. The rest of the war is all logistics. It's all, do you have the food? Do you have the weapons? Do you have the uh, transport to be able to move those weapons and food to where they need to be? And so I really like that. I like, I like the, the kind of focus on that and the, and like the military stuff is kind of done for you, but like you get to set the infrastructure. And so again, again, for me, I, I really enjoy that. And then I, I think I told you guys last time or the time before that I've been playing Ark with my apprentice turkey feathers, and I think I have finally found my favorite creature on the island. Now, I haven't played any of the other maps, but on the island, there is a creature called a Gigantopithecus. It's based on the actual creature that died out uh, 300,000 years ago. Uh, imagine a bipedal gorilla that is, stands taller than a human and weighs anywhere between 440 and 660 pounds. It's just a big old beefcake. Boy. It's a beefcake. And what you can do in the game is like most creatures you can make a saddle for, but the Gigantopithecus is special because you can make helmets for them, which means when you start finding these improved blueprints and can make some pretty bomb bad helmets, you can then equip those helmets onto your Gigantopithecus. Now these guys are muscle on muscle. You're riding on their shoulders. They have this helmet, so they have really high armor. And then they just, they have a, like a, a knockback uh, attack. So anytime they hit something, it staggers. And so I'm rolling around with like four of these guys and apart from the gigantosaur the tie the 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 the, i can't remember the big the massive big rocky uh uh, um bronto dude was huge i can't remember his name but i don't know if i can take him and then i'm sure there's some caves and some alphas that i would struggle with but the majority of the island quakes in fear of my gigantopithecus army and not a whole lot of tactics i just turn my crazy monkey men loose in the jungle but i love it i really love it when you first told me the story, I mixed up Gigantopithecus and Gigantosaurus, and so I thought you had an army of giants, basically Apatosaurus, with helmets. 
Which would just be broken. I mean, that would be broken as, as all And I have to like, admit, I was kind of disappointed to find out that I wasn't correct on that, but also your version is still super cool. Now, similar to that, uh, Turkey is actually breeding a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex army at the moment. Every time I log back in, there's like nine more Tyrannosauruses just hanging out in my base, looking at me all hungry-like, and we're going to be using those to go after bosses, so, you know. That dude is super into growing T-Rex. They're very useful. They're very useful. They got them big old jaws, and I mean, they're stompy as all get out. I love them. They're pretty good. But you know, I, I think that's probably all right for the jaw jacking session today. What do you think? I think we got about twice as much in there as I thought we were going to, so I think it's about time for the episode. I think so, too. So uh, we're going to come back with location, location, location. So one thing I noticed when we first started reading this chapter, or when I first started reading this chapter, was a lot of the information is stuff that we've kind of already talked about before. And it's the danger of any war treatise, especially when you get towards the end of the book, when they're kind of tying everything up. Of It's not necessarily new information, but them going, no, seriously, this is the really important stuff. Right, and right. When it comes to uh, Freddy the G, as Tyler was calling him when I was talking to him about this on General Mercury. Uh, oh, I love that. When it, when it comes to Freddy the G, location is kind of his favorite thing. It's one of the things that is stressed by most, uh, by most military commanders is, again, location is everything. You know, you, if you make your location do the work for you, that's less work your army has to do. Well, and as we've talked about, he was outnumbered. Always, 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 always. always. Yeah, every time. So he had to use location super brilliantly. Like, any, if he ever just was like, sure, I'll meet Britain on a one-on-one, he would have been done. Mm-hmm. Very different story to be telling. So all of this is just to say, if any of this sounds kind of familiar, it's because you have heard it before. You're not crazy. Yeah, and and again, this is going to happen. This is going to happen from time to time when we're studying these books. We're going to get uh, repeat on material, but again, that's stuff that's pretty important. And we're going to try to keep it fresh. We're going to try to to introduce new examples and uh, kind of have different points to drill at home. But I mean, the point of the matter is, some of this stuff is a lot more important than others. You know, like we've said, uh, battle is you know five percent actual battle, or war is actually is five percent actual battle, and then ninety five percent preparation, logistics, and infrastructure. So you know, some of these things are are good to hit home on, and they're things that I don't think a lot of people necessarily think about a lot on their own because they're not the, the glamorous portions. You know, when you're thinking about the glamorous portions of battle, you're thinking about the bayonet charge. Or the the uh, brutal fighting in the trenches, or whatever the case may be. You're not necessarily thinking about the supply master who made sure that everybody had those bayonets, right? But uh, I mean, that's just reality of war. Well, and you've told me before, and I don't remember if you said this on the podcast or just over the 17 years that we've been friends. <laughs> but uh, when you first started picking up war treatises, you know, Sun Tzu's Art of War, or what, all the entire basis of the show, you were really looking forward to like. When they throw this shot, I'm going to throw this shot, like exact step by step for the actual fight, only to find out that no, that's not what any of these books are about. And and, and the longer I've actually been practically using those things, as you know, I've been a realm leader, I've been a unit leader, I've uh, you know, I've I've run the great hunt and that sort of thing, and so I've I've come to see the importance of these things like logistics and administration in the overall effective running of the military, because without them, the rest of the stuff doesn't really matter. You can have the best fighters on the planet, but if you can't get them to the field 
in the same location or at the same time, um, that doesn't matter as much. You know, it's not it's not that big of a deal, or it, it it it's not going to matter as much as it should, as you want it to. So again, location, location, location is huge. And these first couple of points we're going to be making in here are going to sound really familiar. So we're going to go, we're just going to make them uh, and, and, and again, iterate them and kind of move on through. So the first one that uh, Freddie was saying here is if you are smaller, you want to seek dense mountainous terrain. Um, and this, I mean, this, this makes sense. You're trying not to be engaged out in the open. You're trying to have local numeric superiority. Again, this was a, a concept that we touched on the last couple of episodes, uh, local numeric superiority. And so you want to be able to have a p position where you have a narrow front and your flanks are protected. Now, again, you don't want to box yourself in. You want to be in a corner. You want to be able to maneuver out of there if you, if you need to, like, you know, if you put yourself with your back against a wall. Uh, that's desperate fighting right there. You know, it's, it's, that's a do or die situation. Whereas, uh, if you, if you've got this narrow front flanks protected, but you've got an out, uh, for instance, think about, uh, which uh, was it the most recent one or the second, uh, most recent, uh, Star Wars movie where they're holed up inside that bunker and the empire that's, is approaching. That's uh, second most recent one, Last Jedi. So think about that one. Um, you know, um, in The Last Jedi, they're, they're holed up inside this bunker. The Empire is approaching. The Empire absolutely has the firepower superiority, the numeric superiority, and all of those things. But the Empire isn't able to bring all of those things to bear at once against the Rebels because they have very much narrowed their front and their flanks are protected. So they've got this... this opening that the Imperials have to, or that the First Order has to try to get through. And then, of course, there's the, I don't want to give spoilers, but you, you got to have a bug out point, I guess, is the the final uh, thought there. That movie came out three years ago. I think you're okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people that will see a movie, like, three years after it comes out, simply because I don't care for movie theaters. And I'm not necessarily like, I have to be the first one to see it. I, uh, that's not me. And so... I'm with you on that front. I used to do midnight releases, and they sound awful to me now. Yeah. I mean, if, if there was to be another Lord of the Rings movie, you might convince me to come out. Like, those are the midnight <laughs> releases I used to do. If they do another Lord of the Rings movie, you might catch me at a midnight release. But apart from that, I can wait. I was going to say, one thing I like about uh, this, you know, hideout in the mountain, mountainous terrain if you're outnumbered, this is a tactic that has literally, throughout all of time up till now, remained good. Like, there are a lot of tactics they'll talk about that they're like, okay, in modern warfare, this isn't a thing we do. Well, what do you mean? Because that's kind of, that's, that's, that's what, that's what went wrong for the U.S. in the, uh, in the Vietnam War was that the, the Viet Cong were able to kind of position themselves in, in places we weren't able to get at effectively with our numbers and firepower. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. But there are like, there are some tactics, you know, like what to do up against cannons that isn't nearly as applicable or like. True. True. The Mongolian horse archers, that, that is a technique that is in the past now for the most part. And and most artillery artillery engagements happen without being able to see them with the naked eye. Like they they radio you coordinates, you input them into your machine, and then you're shooting at a target that you literally cannot see with your own eyes. But I mean, like within the last year, militants in Pakistan and Afghanistan have been hiding out in the mountains, in the exact same way that people have been hiding out in those same mountains since. People were in those BCE? mountains. People, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's such a small piece of advice, but it is one that has literally always been useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that movie in the eighties, Red Dawn, is basically just what to do in this case. Sure, 
Sure. Uh, and, and again, we're also getting into a little bit more uh, specific of like guerrilla tactics and that sort of thing too, which again, in a few months, we'll go over those um, in mm-hmm. a bit more exquisite detail. So again, uh, if you're smaller, you want to seek dense mountainous terrain, narrow front, flanks protected. Uh, if you're larger and you have a good deal of cav, you're wanting to seek open terrain, right? You want to be very focused on that cav because that's your main mobility. That's your hammer to your anvil. And you want to pursue the envelopment. You want to try to get uh, as many people around the enemy as possible. Because again, you've got numbers and you've got mobility at that point. And so you want to be using those things to your advantage. And so again, this is just to reiterate that in any circumstance, you want to be using whatever you have to your advantage. You have a small force. Okay. Break it up in some dense woodland or some mountains and make it harder to hunt down in one piece. Okay, you got a large group, keep it together and use it as a big, big hammer to smash the enemy. Like there's, it's just, it, it depends on the numbers and, and kind of what you have available. And, and we went over a lot more of that um, uh, previously. So now we're going to get to, to a, a new discussion um, uh, on something that I know we've kind of touched on a little bit, but I'm not sure again, if we've explained it in detail. So one of the things that we've, uh, learned about Frederick is that he is a huge fan of the oblique. Like basically in any circumstance, he recommends doing an oblique maneuver as opposed to hitting your opponent in the center. So before we kind of progress with this discussion, I want to make sure that we define what these two things are. Obviously the center is pretty self-explanatory. It means that the majority of your force, or at least the stronger portion of your force is focused at your center and is going to be hitting the opponent's center. An oblique is when you have a staggered formation, which is to say that you have one wing that is considerably stronger than another, and that is the stronger wing is the one that you use to engage. And so the idea is that you're moving up and you're hitting the other person's wing and and you're hitting them at an angle. And so your center and your wing that is not engaged, they are acting as reserves for the wing that is engaged. And so the idea here is to maintain local numeric superiority as you kind of roll up that line, as as you turn their line. It's different from a flanking maneuver, right? So a a flanking maneuver is kind of uh, disconnected. You've got uh, elements that are moving out and away from the main formation. Um, They still are probably, hopefully, supported by the main formation, but they're not necessarily a part of it. They're a a detachment that's out moving on their own. Whereas if you've got the oblique, that's still part of the main line. You just have the, the extreme left or the extreme right wing of that line engaging primarily. So it's two separate groups versus one group. Um, yes, yes. Yes, flanking yeah. two groups, yes. Um, yeah. I see it often called the hammer in Belagarth, as opposed to oblique, but I mean, I see this, even if we don't talk about it, it's everywhere. Yeah, and I know I've seen a lot of people just do this naturally, like this, just this, uh, this maneuver, this oblique idea evolves naturally because people, it doesn't take a degree in military science to realize, you know, if I'm hitting on the side, I have a lot of tactical advantages on my side if I manage to break them there and roll through the line. So uh, people just kind of tend to gravitate in, in the larger numbers toward the sides. The, the the trick to this is making sure that your strength is against their weakness so that the oblique actually works correctly. Because if you just have strength hitting strength, you're just going to grind each other into paste, really. Like, And unless, you, unless you've got a solid plan for how to deal with that situation, yeah, it just becomes attrition at that point. Machiavelli was a big fan of this, but I, uh, I go back and forth on it myself. And and again, we're going to probably study a few uh, theorists who are a fan of attrition. Again, Ulysses S. Grant won the Civil War with... Uh, with attrition. 
with attrition. So, you know, it, it, it is a time-honored tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So this oblique, the whole point of it is that it gives a chance of turning the opponent's line. And it does so with um, little danger to you. Because again, you're main to your, the idea is you're moving quickly, you're maintaining local superiority in numbers, and you're just uh, kind of rolling up the line as it engages you, but with this large portion of strength. Now going for the center, it can accomplish something good too. If you, if you go for the center and your attack is successful, then you manage to split their line, which is, which is really good too. Then you, then you manage to kind of break apart their continuity. At that point, the line can start to fail. And so, you know, that's a, that's a really high reward, but it's extremely risky. If your attack on the center fails, you're in a very vulnerable position where you can be hit by, on both sides by people if they're, if they're responding quickly enough. It's basically just guaranteeing a pincer. Yeah. And not on your side. Like, it's not the good kind of pincer, which is the kind of pincer that you deliver. <laughs> it's the bad kind of pincer, which is the kind that you're on the receiving end of. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, and that's, and so Frederick doesn't say never hit the center. He doesn't say that no battle has ever been won by hitting the center because those things, those things are patently not true, but he does say that the oblique offers a lot of advantages that uh, hitting the center perhaps does not. And I've noticed this in, in 40 K as well. Um, like this is, this is something that I've, I, I kind of, unless I'm playing death guard, unless I'm playing a group that is designed to take damage, I will typically stay out of the center and and try to use the sides to maneuver, uh, try to gain superiority on one flank or both. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing like a phalanx tactic, it's going to work a little better to go for the center. Although even then you can still like lopside one bit a little bit, but otherwise if you're moving at all, I like maneuverable at all as an army, I do not recommend just the center punch too much. Now, again, what we're sitting, we're sitting here saying black and white, this is all or nothing thinking we're doing here. You have to do the oblique or the center, but in case of most military tactics, honestly, the, the best case scenario is that you hit the oblique and you time a center hit at the same, at the same time, because if you can disrupt their line by, by coming in on the, the, the oblique, and then you also disrupt the center, um, I don't know many groups that aren't going to break at that point. Like that's, that's a whole lot of disruption. Oh yeah. That's rough. If, if we think of it as like three sides of the battle, left, center, right. If you can break up two sides, be it left, right, or left center, or whatever, that's always better than just breaking up one. Right. Right. And then like the, the side that isn't being hit is more likely to flee. Cause they're like, oh man, there's no point in staying here. Those guys are. Those guys are not in a good position. And then the people who aren't in a good position are like, well, we don't want to be here because everybody else is running away. So again, as, as, as much as you can do to disrupt your opponent's formation, that's the idea here. Um, and so again, if you, if you have to choose one or the other, make sure that you're choosing the one that makes the most sense for the field and the force that you're commanding. Frederick recommends the oblique, but uh, we here at Tau recommend that if you can do both, uh, why not both? Do both. Do both. So the last, uh, so again, that's, that's a, the location is where are we fighting? Are we fighting in the center or are we fighting, um, on this oblique idea, this, this, this extreme side of the line. Now out beyond that is flanker territory. Out beyond that is, is where the counterflankers and the flankers, which we are calling cavalry uh, in most cases on this show, um, are kind of playing their, their little chess match against each other. Now, Frederick says that oftentimes a cavalry match will be decided far before the actual battle actually comes together, which makes sense. You've got your fastest moving groups uh, kind of going against one another, but this is important. What occurs in this fight for the flank 
is extremely important for the, the battle overall, because whoever controls these flank positions is in a really powerful idea. Because if you're, for instance, if you're doing an oblique attack and you don't control that flank, you're in a very dangerous position. You're in danger of being enveloped at that point. Like, mm -hmm. um, that's not a good place to be. So if you're doing an oblique, you need to control that flank. Likewise, if you're, if you're on the receiving end of anything, controlling the flank means you have breathing room, means you can maneuver out one way or the other. So these little fights that take place between the, the flankers and counterflankers can be some of the most important fights that occur on the field. It's the same, again, it's the same thing in, in a tabletop idea in, in any sort of uh, uh, intellectual wargaming. You know, if you, if you get your fast moving, your fast attack guys into a good position, that really limits your opponent's um, options. It's huge. And so again, for us, this is a matter of your fasting, fastest moving people, your, your turkey feathers and, and that sort of people who are, who are very fleet of foot, constantly in motion on the field. Also think shy, trying to think of other people who are like calf, like really stand out in my mind as calf. <laughs> oh God, I've got someone on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of who it is. Sorry. Silo was pretty good at it. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's, he's one of the best Cav uh, guys that I know of. So, but, but the, one of the most important things about this, uh, about this, this, whether there's flankers or there's counterflankers, flankers are so much more effective if they have infantry support. So if you've got um, a group of slower moving shieldmen or a group of slower moving like pole arms or, a, or like a mixed unit that is backing up your pickets or backing up your flankers, they are going to be so much more effective because there's something else to distract. You know, it's pretty easy to keep an eye on Shy. When he's the only one around, if his team is all the way on the other side of the field and he's just standing there looking at you, like I can, I can keep an eye on that fella pretty easy at that point. But if his team is also pressing up on me, uh, suddenly it's harder to keep an eye on Shy. Yeah, I, I can focus on one or the other when someone's actively attacking me. Generally, like sure, sure. I mean, you can only like when you're when you're in the moment, you got to put your focus somewhere. And so, I mean, this just demonstrates though, like you've got a very good, a very effective fighter in of his own right who is made even more effective by the presence of infantry support. And so, and so that's the idea. If you see somebody running off, you you see a, a pockshaw or or something like that running off to do a flanky maneuver. It's a good idea to move up to support. Again, you it doesn't even have to be like a committed action. Just a matter of supporting that makes it more likely of succeeding. But yeah, so we've we've talked about uh, you know where to go if you're smaller and if you're larger. We've talked about kind of uh, the the pros and cons of attacking in different places on the line, and then of course what's happening way out past the wings out there on the flanks. And the counterflanks. I don't know if the counterflank is a position. I just made it up. It's a location. It counterflank is, in is a We use it. <laughs> it's a pos I, I know it's a position, but I'm not sure if it's a location. I think that's a stretch. I think Miriam Close Webster enough. might have something to say with me about that. Language evolves, Mark. You have anything else no, to? No, I think that's pretty much it. That's as we said. This is a lot of stuff that we've covered before. Yep. Uh, and, but in this next one, we're going to be moving into a little bit of new information. Again, mixing it with some old one when we talk about playing the field. So in 40k and in Belagarth, in similar types of intellectual and physical wargaming, you're going to have different types of fields. You're going to have fields with a lot of terrain, with a little terrain, and no terrain. And it's, it's good to kind of know what, uh, what the idea is in each of those situations. Now, again, he's not going to go into the same detail that Sun Tzu does. You know, Sun Tzu's got this extremely detailed idea of what to do in these different types of terrain. But we've got two big sections for you in this idea of playing the field. 
So the first one is if you have a battle in plains with broken woods and marshes. So this is some terrain. And this is most 40k matches are going to take place on one of these uh, some terrain. I, I've seen a lot of uh, Dagger here, Belagarth, um, Amp Guard fields that have this idea of some terrain. Most paintball fields that I've ever been on have something like this. Even if you're just playing woods ball, like that's still like you've got open spaces, but you've also got these these broken woods and marshes. Um, is the idea generally if it's a terrain thing, it's going to be some terrain as opposed to like full terrain. Right, right. And I mean, even even in 40k, I struggle to think of of an idea where it's like all terrain, like in certain certain battle types, like if you and your partner agree to do like a city oriented battle where you've got the, the whole battle map just completely jam packed and it's like building to building fighting and you've set it up that way, like that's one thing. But very rarely at a tournament are you going to find so much terrain that you're like, wow, this I was not prepared for this. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no open spaces. That'd be a great kill team game, though. Great, uh, great kill team game, but you know the rules are a little bit different in kill team. But yeah, so so again, th- this is a fairly common um, terrain type or, or 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 battle setting. So wherever the ground is broken, Frederick says that that country is then made for artifice. So what he means here is that that wherever you've got anything that that disrupts the natural flow. So if you've got a group of buildings, a group of trees, um, a, a marsh, um, uh, giant you know, just, just castle giant inflatable castle, like whatever the case may be, where the ground is broken, that's a place that's made for either preparing an ambush, looking to make sure that you're not ambushed, or uh, maneuvering forces that can't be seen, like whatever the case may be. Like if you're going to plan something tricky, you want to do it there, right? And if your opponent's going to plan something tricky, they're likely going to be doing it there. And so it's just a good idea. Make sure that you're constantly watching the obstacles. Like if you're in a a castle battle, you want to make sure you're watching the corners to both sides because you can't see around the walls. Unless you're like, I've I've definitely seen some quote unquote castles that were just like two hay bales high. So if people were coming around, you could definitely see them. But I've also seen castles like the one that Durdamarian has where it's, it's like a real castle. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. the walls are tall. So if somebody's moving over there, you're not going to just, see them so like you want to be constantly aware of these things if you're not already moving to take it and use it for artifice yourself so the idea here is you want to keep the front of your line as tight as possible right you don't want to allow anybody through you and so you're obviously making allowances for these obstacles and kind of contracting and expanding the line as you need to uh, as you're moving through but that front line needs to be tight to make sure that nothing can get through. You don't want flankers. You don't want uh, small detachments or, or, or small groups of fighters to be able to get through your line and around to your, to your back area where your sensitive things are, your big guns or your, your archers or what have you. So keep it as tight as possible. But the rest of the army needs to spread out to allow for maneuver, to allow for a uh, better flexibility, some better mobility. This is the whole point of the rest of the army kind of spreading out. And this also allows you to respond to threats a lot more accurately than if you had really specific plans moving through, right? So think, if, if anybody of you are American football fans, we're, we're talking more about a zone defense here, right? It's not man-to-man. Those are words... I know they yeah, need I, something. <laughs> Thumbs isn't a huge football guy. I, to be honest, like, please do not message me wanting to talk about football. I know enough about it to discuss it within a slightly intelligent context. I learned football because I was a member of the United States Army. And um, if you don't speak football, 
you don't really speak to your fellow soldiers. So I, I mean, I picked a favorite team. I learned enough to be able to say, I know what a fourth down is. <laughs> I'm just imagining you like waiting for the conversation so you can drop that for the first time. Fourth down. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, so but, but when you're thinking about this, what he's recommending is again, a zone defense where you're spread out. You're, you've got guys who are, who are uh, assigned to different zones in, relative to one another rather than a man to man because this allows for a better flexibility. Now there's situations where you're going to want a man-to-man defense, but in terms of moving through this broken country, spreading out, allowing for this zone, again, allows you to respond to threats that you might have not have anticipated. Anything else on the battles and in, in, in plains with broken woods and marshes? No, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's fun. One of my favorite I mean, ways to fight. <laughs> yeah, in, in physical war, at least in Belagarth here in the West, we don't get this very often. There's a few fields you go to where you get some of this, but the majority of what we do is in open open plains type things, which is what we're about to get into. So, um, battles in open fields, second part of this uh, this section, and this is when you have little to no terrain. So this is going to be most of your physical war gaming fields that I've seen um, kind of fall into this category: little to no terrain. It's like a soccer field, but, you know, bigger. A soccer field, public park, um, anything like that. And, and some, depending on the, the tournament that you go to in something like 40K or other types of, uh, you know, intellectual wargaming, you might see this. Now, most tournaments that I've seen at least try to, to have the, the some terrain qualifier going on there. But uh, every now and then you have a, a group that perhaps is getting a larger influx of players than they expected, or they, they just they believe in a sparser terrain setup, like whatever the case may be, you might see this. So th- this could still be useful. And the, the chief idea, if you're fighting a battle in the open field, is to keep the enemy occupied everywhere in order to prevent offensive movement. Now, this doesn't mean that you launch major offenses everywhere, because, you know, unless you've got the numbers to do that, because, I mean, if you do, then absolutely do that. But oh, yeah. assuming, assuming that you don't have the numbers to uh, launch a massive offensive everywhere. The idea is that your pickets, your your forward vanguard elements are harassing the enemy and keeping them busy, keeping them fixed so that they are not able to launch a large maneuver of their own. They're constantly on the back foot dealing with what you're you're kind of dishing out to them. Best defense is a good offense basically in a sentence. Yep. Yep, and again you've got you've got your 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 pockshaws and your turkey feathers all forward deployed and they're out there harassing the line. And then the rest of the army is looking for a good place to punch. So, again, a, a, a good idea here, because we're talking about these flankers and the counterflankers, right? This, this, this battle for the flank out there. And so you want to make sure that you block your enemy wings. And you do this by having strong wings yourself and also by the use of counterflankers. Like, if they don't have solid flanking maneuvers in order to support their motion, it's going to slow down their main effort, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, you want to make sure that you're blocking the enemy wings in order to to arrest their motion because again if we're talking about those those sides being the most dangerous portions of the army not just for you but for your for your enemy um you want to make sure that theirs are busy and then on that same idea you want to reinforce your own wing with uh additional cav additional infantry additional artillery whatever you can can spare over there and make sure that you understand that your cav serve two purposes out there on the wing the first one, obviously, is they're there to take advantage of your enemy and anything that they do wrong. They're there to offer flanking and counterflanking uh, opportunities, but they're also there to cover any sort of infantry retreat 
that is necessary. So remember in the previous section, we talked about that the infantry was necessary uh, and that they must support uh, any cav maneuver in, for, in order for it to be truly effective. The same is true if the infantry is withdrawing, you want to be using your cav to support that motion. And, and a good example of this is if anybody has shared a field with Pockshaw, I, I, I'm doubtless that you would have seen him, him do this. So you've got a, you're on a side, you're getting a little beat up, you're like, we need to pull back and regroup. You start to pull back, and then Pockshaw appears out of nowhere, and he approaches their line at a 45 degree angle. And he just starts making a bunch of noise, maybe hitting a shield or two and just really drawing the attention. And Pay even attention though, to me. even though he's just one person adding to, to, to a dwindling group that is, that is being pressed upon, that motion is often enough, if you're paying attention, for that group to be able to get away because it, it distracts oh, yeah. the enemy for long enough and keeps them busy so that the, the slower moving troops can withdraw. Well, and if you continue to ignore Pakshaw, that'll also work out in Pakshaw's case, because he'll just eat you up at that 45-degree angle. Right, right. And, and, and it's the same thing with any sort of cav. You want to make sure that your cav has bite. They're not just noises on ponies. They also <laughs> need to be able to, like, if they're sitting there and they're like, oh, they're not paying attention, uh, charge? Yeah, let's charge. You know, that's, they need to be able to take advantage of those things, too. So, um... Yeah, reinforce your own wings and make sure that the cav knows that they have this role as well. Again, Pockshaw is really good about it, but I know a lot of flankers who just kind of go off and do their own things. And they're like, well, I guess that, that side is, is uh, in a bad position. And it's like, well, you have another job to do, friend. Yeah, that's help them. <laughs> help them get out of there. And so before we close on this idea of playing the field, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, moving from place to place and kind of what the different formations mean. Now, this, this idea of a column and a line, this is something I, again, see naturally just within the motion of people in, in physical wargaming. And, and you'll, you'll have like one or two or a group of people who are moving in a direction. The rest of the army is like, that looks like a good idea, kind of falls into line behind them. This is your column, right? And then when you meet the opponent, everybody spreads out to occupy the front. And this is the line. And so in most armies, uh, the conventional armies of Frederick's time, um, you would have had very strict drill in order to maneuver from a column to a line. We don't do that in Belagarth, and I, and I don't know many physical war games that actually practice to that degree. But imagine the speed at which you could go. Like if you were the first team, I, w- I would love to see this. The next time I'm at an event, if I suddenly see a group that goes from a column to a line in an organized way, I will, I don't know what award I can, I can give you, but I'll give you a pat on the back. I can guarantee that. And, uh, yeah. and definitely a guffaw. Part of the hard part of this is it would work best if it's a unit that is all based in a single realm. Right. So they can practice together if it's something like Gel for me or even more DA for you. Sure. We're all on the other side of the country for the most part. That's a hard one to practice together. But you could also, there's also realm battles. Like I, I know oh, yeah. a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of events will have a realm battle where it's, it's you from your your local town or whatever, and that's your, that's your team for that particular fight. And I don't know, I'm just sitting here imagining Stygians like marching across the field quickly in a column and then moving into a line and then back into a column and just, I don't know, it's a, it's an image that tickles me. So maybe I'll, maybe we'll try to make that happen. Anytime I read about the column, I just hear Sir Alec Guinness going, sad people march single file to hide their numbers. <laughs> but it's good i mean again you're you're moving quickly you're masking your true strength um which is again part of the point of a column and then suddenly you're there just and if someone's attacking from the front they only have a small area of people to attack from and if you get surprise attacked from the side you basically just 
turn left and suddenly you're aligned. Yep. Yep. So again, if you if you can figure out how to do this with your group, I will be it's a lot easier with 40k. It's a lot easier with 40k yeah. in order to maneuver things in this way. I do it all the time. Um, you know, you you put some some thick dudes with shields or something in the front and have them kind of be the scariest, most distracting thing, and then you have everything else kind of behind them, and then everything spreads out to do its job when you actually come into contact with the enemy. And again, this is this is something that that most people do instinctively, kind of like the oblique. A lot of people fall into this instinctively, but I think that you could be so much more effective at it if you're doing it with purpose and and you kind of know the science behind uh, the action that you're taking. So do you have anything else for for playing the field, sir? Uh-uh. This is I'm sorry, guys. I keep being like, "Nope, this is a pretty straightforward chapter," but it's a pretty straightforward chapter in the lesson here. Yeah, not a I mean, there's not a whole lot of nuance. Again, the the middle of the book, Frederick definitely got a lot more uh expressive with his prose, but at this point in the book, he's like, "All right, you guys basically have the idea i'm going to be hitting a couple more key points i mean we went with this the same thing with machiavelli like the last couple of chapters of machiavelli were were kind of a wrap-up of the rest of the book not so much with sun Tzu. he just kept throwing out new material every single time nope he's like i've got 13 lessons let's do the 13 lessons there's no like well in conclusion so yeah i guess in conclusion that has been uh has been playing the field and location 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 and uh, now we're actually going to discuss one of Frederick's battles. Actually, one of the battles that he talked about in this section, uh, and that would be the Battle of Sewer. So the Battle of Sewer, we think. This is one of the cases where our Montana accents are working against us because we always add like an extra full syllable to er noises. Especially especially if you got two vowels in a row. Like we, we're like, well, we got to throw in some flavor there. We are a believer of the diphthong. So we're like sewer. Mountain. And it's not. It, it is not S-E-W-E-R. They're not like, you know, going beneath the city to do this. This is S-O-O-R. Which we think is pronounced sewer. Sewer. Dunno. But without the W that we, we can't help but throw in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yes. Also, if you Google this battle, be careful. There was apparently a battle in, I believe, the Revolutionary War called the Battle of the Door or something like that. And Google kept meaning being like, You meant the Battle of Door, right? Door. No, it's door. And I'm like, it, it I promise you it's not. I am spelling this correctly. I, I did pass my, my basic literacy. I, I know how I, to do this. I, I know we're past the age where I'm smarter than the computer, but in this specific instance, I am. I know it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like Thumb said, this is the, the Battle of Sewer. Again, we're trying not, to, trying not to mispronounce that, but anybody from the area is just sitting there banging their head against something, I'm sure. So this happened on the 30th of September in 1745 in Hajnis, Bohemia which is in the modern-day Czech Republic. So this was a part of the Second Silesian War, which is a, a greater part of the... So like the First Silesian War, which we covered a battle on a few episodes ago, and the Second Silesian War were both part of the War of Austrian Secession. So uh, during this time, of course, Frederick had, had taken Silesia, and during the Second Silesian War, he was solidifying his hold over the region. 
And at the time uh, of this battle, it was three months after the Battle of Hohenfriedberg. Man, I struggled through that one. I will get that one smoother by the time we actually do it as a as a battle. Because we will. It's, it was a really good one. It's one of Frederick's best. It's okay. The, the Montana accents are striking again. So it's three months after that, and he gave um, Charles of Lorraine a, a serious beating there as well. So let's, but first, let's, yeah, let's talk about who's involved here. So our two combatants in today's battle were Prussia, uh, commanded by Frederick the Great, and Austria-Saxony, commanded by Prince Charles of Lorraine. At the time, Prussia had 22,500 troops, and Austria numbered at 40,200. And again, spoiler alert, like we like to do, by the end of this battle, Frederick ended up with 3,055 um, wounded or missing and 856 killed. And on the uh, Austrian side, you had 7,444 killed, wounded, or missing. That is... It's kind of like Fredericksburg. That is ridiculously small numbers of losses. It is insane. It is why we keep talking. I mean, it's why he's called Frederick the Great. It's why we will never stop talking him up. Why he's Malark's spirit boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this guy. <laughs> so... Again, this is this is right after a pretty serious defeat um, for for Prince Charles, and um, Frederick is on his way back to Berlin. Now he's going there to inspect a palace, and he's kind of prepared to simmer down the campaign. And so he's broken his army off to, into several different detachments, and he's kind of moving back with the purpose of not really engaging in much battle anymore. And Prince Charles well, and also on that front. Uh, it's September. Back then, a lot of times winter wars weren't a super common thing. It wasn't com- uncommon to be like, all right. We can't, you know, survive the cold, harsh Austrian winter and fight. So we'll see you in three or four months. Well, you remember even in Machiavelli, Machiavelli's like, yeah, just don't fight in the winter. It's just not a good idea. Just don't do it. And so everybody's starting to calm down. But Prince Charles observes that uh, uh, Frederick didn't occupy the heights. There's a, a commanding hill nearby from, from where uh, Frederick is camped that uh, is unoccupied. And so Prince Charles moves to occupy that hill, and then a, a series of smaller hills that kind of move out onto Frederick's flank. And, and he's preparing for a surprise attack. He's going to be bringing this larger force to bear. He's getting himself into a good kind of envelopment start, and, uh, and the idea is to just catch Frederick by surprise and take him out right there. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things we have drilled upon ad nauseum on this show is the use of scouts and pickets. And Frederick was not lacking in those things. He had really good scouts, and they alerted him to the presence of Prince Charles. And so, uh, of course, they responded. And this this hill that was on the flank for Frederick, I mean, it was also the, basically the flank for Prince Charles, too. So this hill was really important. Do we know why Fred didn't take this hill in the beginning, just like it wasn't worth it when there wasn't a fight going, or...? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he had, he had just given a, a fairly serious defeat to Prince Charles and it was moving into the winter months. And so I, I doubt that he was expecting an engagement at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And so where he would normally have been much more diligent, like if this would have been June or July, uh, I'm pretty certain he would have made sure to have those hills. But as he was moving back and being like, okay, we're going to be pausing the campaign for a bit, I, I, he was a bit more sloppy with his formation at this time. It just caught me by surprise because he's so good at that. But that makes sense. Oh, yeah, me too. Like, I guess I was reading about this when it was like, wow, okay, Fred was actually, yeah, he was caught by surprise here. Okay. But not for long, because again, the, the scouts became aware of what was going on and they moved for the hill. 
the Cav went first, and there was uh, a series of really uh, brutal fights going on up there between the Cav, but eventually the Austrian Cav move off, and the Prussian Cav kind of have control of the ring around the hill, and then the infantry move up, they are repulsed once, but the second time around, they end up taking that hill and, and, and starting the turn of the Austrian flank. Now, one of the reasons that the Austrians lost the hill and ended up losing the battle here was because they refused to fire on their own position. They didn't want to catch their own guys in their, in their, in the rate of fire to maintain this hill. Your opinion can kind of go back and forth on this. On one side, I'm like, man, I, I can see their point, like not wanting to hit their own dudes with their own artillery, because that's, that's kind of a, uh, you know, you expect soldiers to die in battle, but you don't want to be killing your own. Like that's, I understand that. I mean, just thinking like, well, you're war gamers. I'm sure you've all played D and D before. In D&D, when someone's in, like, melee, and you don't want to risk firing into that because there's a chance of hitting your own guy. Right. And that's on a pen and paper thing. Imagine doing it when it's, you know, the guy you've been marching with for the last six months, couple of years. Yeah. Actual people. Actual, actual countrymen, yeah. Not just theoretical people. That's Bob. That's, that's a rough order to give right there. That's a rough order to give. So, I mean, even though it was a bit of a tactical blunder, one can't necessarily blame Prince Charles and his officers for not wanting to fire on their own men. But because of that, um, Frederick ends up taking that hill. Now, that alone may have not been enough to turn the tide here. Remember, Prince Charles is actually in a very good position and has caught Frederick kind of out of position. And so if this battle had continued from this point on, this hill may not have made much of a difference. And we may be talking about it differently today. It would be reading Prince Frederick's book. Or Prince Charles's book, yeah. Good point. <laughs> Prince Charles's book. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> I'm going to say it's King Frederick, sir. King in and King of Prussia. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the, the, if you're picturing the formations here, picture um, uh, th that uh, the Austrians kind of have the beginnings of an envelopment going. And of course, Frederick is doing his classic oblique. Now, one of his troops breaks formation here. Because, again, in the, in the oblique, the flank or the wing that is engaging is where the main action is, and the rest of the army acts as a reserve for that action. So it turns out that one of the uh, officers who was leading a unit in the center got impatient or got thirsty for glory or whatever the case may be, and led a bayonet charge on the Austrian center. You know you're hungry when you're leading a bayonet charge. A bayonet charge on the Austrian center, yeah. And they were, they were, they were well uh, entrenched in a town. And so this action on of itself may have proven disastrous. If it wasn't supported by the, by, by the rest of the oblique, if that hill hadn't been taken, then this action would have been awful. But in terms of where the battle was, and in terms of the delicacy of the Austrian line, this attack could not have come at a more opportune time because it hit the center, broke the center, and that combined with the turning of the line meant that the Austrians just, they had no more command and control. It was, it was they were out of there. They are out of there, man. Didn't want to play no more. No, <laughs> it was done. Which is, man, that is, by every marker, they should have won this battle. Oh, yeah. I mean, Prince Charles had the better position. He had the high ground. He had the element of surprise. He had the bigger numbers. He had the two to one advantage. Yep, 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 yep. It was, uh, it, it definitely looked like it was going to be Prince Charles, but it, it turned out for Frederick. And, and again, that was partially because Frederick knew how to use his army and knew how to respond effectively. He had troops in the field that were able to give him accurate information and he was able to make a good battle plan based off of that information. And it came from somebody disobeying orders. 
which is not something yeah, we often praise on this show. He is super lucky that that worked out. Otherwise, yeah, that that would have again it would have proven disastrous. Like if you're going after the center and you don't take it, you're in a bad position. That is not a place you want to be because everybody's looking at you, and it's hard to get out of there with your your unit intact. Be hungry. Yeah. So that's the Battle of of Sewer, S-O-O-R. Again, uh, one of Frederick's own, and and again, one of those ones where luck seems to have played just as much of a part as actual skill, which which is most most battle. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've lost to a quote-unquote worse player or a worse fighter. And and again, like, it just happens, you know? It just just happens that luck is also a major component of, of fighting, especially in something like 40K, where you've got dice involved but even more so in, 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 in physical fighting as well. It definitely happened less often when I tried to stop thinking about, like, I am better than this player, I am worse than this player, and just, I'm going. They're a target. That's, that's what I had to change yeah. it to. I was like, this is a person with a sword standing against me. I'm not going to even think about if they're a vet or if they're a noob. I'm going to fight them the same regardless, and I'm going to fight them like they are a threat. And like, I'm trying to neutralize them as quickly as possible. I, again, doesn't matter if they're a noob or a vet, they need to be, uh, they need to be dead or legged and behind me at that point. <laughs> Not directly behind me because then that's, you know, that's a snafu as well. No, that, that backfires. That's, that's just getting flanked. Well, uh, did you have anything else to say on, on, uh, on sewer real quick? No, this is a, it was kind of hard to find on. As I said, there wasn't a whole lot. I know you have your big fancy books of battles, but I couldn't find a whole ton on it, so we covered it all pretty good. We already covered the the like the first Silencian War, so I don't feel like doing a whole lot of background on that is necessary since we we only recently just talked about it. Now, usually our battles are like let's do all the lead up. We don't need to here. The only thing I have is I'm looking at the the pictures of Frederick and Charles, and they basically just look like something out of Warhammer if you change their hair. And <laughs> give them like a bolt pistol or something. Oh yeah. Love Metal it. eye, you know. I love it. Um, so yeah, today we've talked about uh, how location is important. And we, we kind of re, re, um, retouched on the ideas from last time uh, on what to do if you're smaller and what to do if you're larger and have cav. Uh, we talked a little bit about the difference between hitting the oblique and the center and kind of the pros and cons of both. And then, of course, we talked about the fight on the flank, the counterflankers and flankers and how what they do out there can somewhat and can sometimes decide the rest of the match. And then, of course, we, we talked about terrain, how you deal with, with some terrain, and then how you deal with little to, to no terrain and kind of the, the, the rules you want to be thinking about at those times. And then well, we just finished up with talking about one of Frederick's own victories at the Battle of Sewer. But if, if you got through the, this episode and you're like, man, I just did not have enough Art of Wargaming, you can go on to our Instagram or on to our Facebook. And uh, I, I'm, I'm constantly putting out some memes there. We try to have uh, trivia and, and little factoids from either the era we're talking about or the battle we're talking about. So you can learn a little bit more um, on, on those things. Uh, we've, of course, got our player profiles and that sort of thing where we highlight members of the communities that we, uh, we love so much and that we're trying to reach with this information. Um, yeah, we've got, we've got some sister shows, too, if you're, if you're looking for some more listening as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, beyond just subscribe and listen to us and hear more things, there is General Nerdery, where me and Tyler do a podcast about liking things. Uh, And then there is Fried Squirms, also on the Earverm Network, which is about two people watching horror movies. It is uh, a very strange podcast. 
but I imagine quite entertaining for folks who enjoy that sort of genre. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course we've got our, our email address. If you want to, again, uh, write us and let us know what we're doing well, what we're doing wrong, what you'd like to see art of war gaming podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's a good place to send your player profiles. If you want to be included in that, we have a website as well. Tau Wargaming, uh, com. I think, right? Yes. It's been a while since we did this. <laughs> Taowargaming.com. Yep. And again, please uh, repost, like, subscribe, um, uh, rate us wh wherever you can. It really helps us out, gets us out there and, and enables us to do a little bit more and, and eventually expand the show into covering some more topics. And uh, again, the dream is to eventually be going to tournaments and events and doing uh, live or, or reported coverage of events is kind of where we'd like to go with this. Um, but yeah, I, I think for, for this week, this has been Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. 